Whitefields, good to be with you today. I always enjoy Sundays. I look forward to them all week. I hope you do too. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 17. Right now we are studying through the book of Genesis, looking at every verse, every chapter. And, uh, and you know, there are certain chapters of the Bible that uh, if you are, you know, teaching topically... These probably aren't the topics that you'd choose. And that really, in a sense, that is one of the benefits of teaching through the scriptures is because we touch on even those topics that you generally skip over and avoid. And, and today, we get to do one of those. But I think it's going to be great, and I really expect that God's going to speak to us and bless us. So let's bow our heads and pray as we open up God's word today. Heavenly Father, we come to your word with expectation. Lord, thank you that as we call upon you as your people, Lord, you meet with us. You are so faithful and so good to do that. And so, Lord, this morning with open hearts, we come to you. Lord, we ask that you'd speak to us. We ask that you plant the seed of your word in our hearts, Lord, and we pray that you would make our hearts be good soil that receives your word, Lord, and that produces much fruit as a result. Lord, we pray that you would form us by your spirit. Transform us as we study your word, Lord. Let us be conformed to your image for your glory. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Last week we had a family service, which means that we had all the kids in with us. Uh, We were outside, but all the kids were there with us listening to the sermon. And I'm really glad that family week was last week and not this week, because today we're going to be talking about circumcision, which is everybody's favorite topic. And our story, uh, in our story, what we're going to see is a 99-year-old man taking a knife and circumcising himself and his son and every male in his household, including even those who work for him. Now, uh, this is a a story and a topic which is able to strike fear in the hearts of grown men. It gives people nightmares, and I can just imagine the kind of trauma that it would have caused for our children. So, there are, you know, there are certain chapters which we study in Sunday school, we have coloring pages for, and there are certain chapters which we, we skip in Sunday school. And we, we, uh, you know, until the kids get a little bit older, uh, because they're rated M for mature. But God knows that we are adults, and he speaks to us as adults. And, uh, you know, so I'm just praising the Lord this morning that in his infinite wisdom, he orchestrated the events in our church calendar in such a way that we didn't have to talk about circumcision on Family Sunday. In our study through the book of Genesis, uh, we're at a point where we are studying the life of a man named Abram. And in the grand scheme of the Bible, the grand narrative of the Bible, Abram is important for two reasons. Number one, because the Messiah, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, is going to descend from him. And secondly, because he is the model that the Bible gives us of what it means and what it looks like to walk with God by faith and be connected to God by faith. So today in chapter 17, as we talk about circumcision, really our focus uh, in our text is on the importance of responding to God. And, And what we see in God's word is this. God initiates and we respond. That's the model that we're given. That's the ideal. It's like two pedals on a bicycle, right? And that's how our relationship with God works and how it moves forward. God initiates and we respond. Okay, So we're going to see that Abram was a man who responded to God's word and responded to God's grace. And we're going to be faced with the question, 
that we have to ask ourselves, am I a person who responds to God? Am I a person who responds to God's grace in my life? Am I a person who responds to God's word when he speaks to me? So for you note takers, let me give you an outline here. Here's how we're going to break this down. From the, in the first 21 verses, we're going to talk about God's part, right? Because I talked about this is that God initiates, we respond, right? So in the first 21 verses, we talk about God's part, and, and that's broken into two parts. The initiation, which requires a response, and God's request for a response. And the second part is going to be our part, which is much shorter. I hope you noticed that. That's verses 22 through 27, and we're going to talk about the urgency of response and the extent of response. So if you have your Bible, please read along with me. We're going to read the first eight verses of chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God, or to be God to you and your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This is the word of the Lord. First of all, let's talk about God's part. Let's talk about the initiation, which requires a response. God initiates, we respond. Abram Abram's now 99 years old. And we can do the math. That means that it's been 24 years since Abram began his journey of faith with God. And at that time, God appeared to Abram and he made a covenant with him. And here God shows up and speaks to Abram, much as he did in chapter 15 also. And he says, I am here to confirm the covenant that I made with you. You know, one of the central aspects, uh, one of the central concepts in the Bible is the idea or the concept of a covenant relationship. You know, a covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties which is predicated on certain promises. And in the Bible, God makes a number of covenants with people, and they're always based on his promises to them. And oftentimes, they require a response on the part of the person with whom the covenant is made. So again, in God's word, this is the model. God initiates and we respond. God could pedal the bike all by himself, right? That, but that's how covenant relationship with God works, and it's how it moves forward. God initiates, we respond. Like I said, God could pedal the bike all by himself. He could do both parts. He's capable of that. But he's chosen to be in a covenant relationship with us. And, and like any relationship, this one also requires both parties to have a role to play. That's how God has chosen to set it up. You know, many times here at Whitefields, we put a big emphasis on God's part of the covenant, how God initiates, and we talk a lot about his grace, and rightly so, we're not going to change that at all. But 
what we see in this chapter is, is an important balance to that, and that's this. We cannot minimize the importance of our response to God's grace, to God's initiation. What we see in this chapter is that God cares very much, actually, about how we respond to his grace. For example, Jesus died for the whole world. And we read in his word that he, 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 he is the propitiation for the sins, not just of us, but for the whole world. But how a person responds to what Jesus did for them makes all the difference in the world, right? God offers forgiveness and eternal life and reconciliation with him in Jesus Christ. But in order to take hold of those things, we must respond to that offer by believing on the gospel and making Jesus Christ the Lord of our life. The Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us, is, is at work in the world and he is convicting all people of their sinful condition, convicting them that they need a Savior. They need to put their faith in Jesus Christ and, and his finished work on the cross, calling them to put their faith in the gospel. But how people respond to that call of the Holy Spirit makes all the difference in the world, right? So in no way can we minimize the importance of our response to God's initiation in our lives. Some people, though, that, that's where we get complicated, is that some people tend to put the cart before the horse. And they believe, rather the opposite, that, that they have to initiate so that God will respond to them, right? Some people, it's because they have this, this image of God in their mind that God is somehow reluctant, to hear them, reluctant to bless them. And if they could only just do more, if they could put in, you know, more output, then God would respond to them. You know, they would say something like, if you could just make yourself acceptable to God, then maybe he will respond and accept you and forgive you and hear your prayers and bless you. But the gospel message is actually the opposite of that. The gospel message is this, that God loves you. And he's done everything for you in Christ Jesus. And you simply need to respond to him by believing the gospel, by accepting his grace, by obeying him when he speaks to you, and following him when he leads you. So do you see that difference? Because it's an important one. right? God, the gospel says that God initiates and we respond. And that's why... In this church, again, that's why we put such a big emphasis on proclaiming the gospel of God's grace over and over and over, every week. That's why we talk about what God has done for us rather than focusing on what you need to do for God. Because when you actually get a glimpse of the gospel, when you begin to grasp all that God has done for you in Christ Jesus, it compels you to respond. Second Corinthians chapter 5, it says this, for the love of Christ compels us or controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So again, when you catch a glimpse, when you begin to grasp all that God has done for you in Christ, for example, in, in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul makes this statement that, in Christ, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You cannot get a bigger scope or scale than that. When you get a glimpse of that, a grasp of it, it begins to compel you. It moves you. It becomes this motivating factor in your life. That love of God that was shown to you in Christ, it becomes this thing that motivates you to respond to God. And you respond how? 
in thanksgiving, in faith, in trust, in obedience. Because you see that he's truly loving and truly good and truly trustworthy when you look upon the cross and you see how he's gracious and blesses you. You know this, if if you truly want to stir up a fire in your heart for God, then here's what you need to do. You need to spend time focusing on all that God has done for you. The psalmist did this exact thing. In Psalm 103, David wrote these words in order to stir up his own heart for the Lord. He said, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he starts to list what God has done for him. He says, Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. And then, so then he talks what God has done for him, and then he talks about who God is, the character of God. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He has made his ways known to Moses He acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in steadfast love. He's reminding himself of all that God's done for him, and then he reminds himself of who God is, God's character. And he's just stirring himself up. And finally, he he ends with this crescendo, this statement, this conclusion, and he says this is the proper response to who God is and what God has done. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places in his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You see, if you start out with what God has done and who God is, if you do that, you cannot help but respond to be stirred up in your soul because your heart is moved by who God is and what he's done for you. And so that's, that's the thing that people sometimes get that backwards, right? They honestly, sincerely love the Lord and they sincerely want to live for him, but their focus and all their time and energy is mixed up, it's muddled because it's focused on what they should be doing for God rather than what God has done for them in Christ Jesus. And, and rather than experiencing a sense of freedom and joy and, and thankfulness and just an overwhelming, overflowing appreciation and love for God that motivates them and moves them forward, they end up with a sense of condemnation and a sense of, of never being good enough and a sense of, of never doing enough in order for God to really be satisfied with them or pleased with them, in order for God to truly delight in them. But what they're failing to realize, and if that's you, what you're failing to realize is that in Christ, God already loves you. In Christ, he is already pleased with you, and he delights in you. What a freeing thing that is. And we need to get our, our heads around that. We need to understand that. So that's why here in Genesis chapter 17, God begins... This whole thing by telling Abram all that he has done for him and all that he will do for him before he ever begins talking about what Abram's response to that should be. I think that's really key. And we see here in this section, God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Now, Abram and Abraham, the difference between these two is essentially, really, linguistically, and I'm a big fan of linguistics, I don't know if you are, but I'm kind of a 
linguistics nerd. Abraham is the plural form of Abram. And later on, Sarai, is, her name is going to be changed to Sarah, which is a plural form of her name. So God's changing his name into a plural form. And he tells him this. He says, you know, Abram really means exalted father. And, uh, and the best translation we have and what the Bible tells us here is this, that Abraham essentially means father of a multitude, right? In other words, God's saying to Abram, he says, look, Abram, I know that you are a homeless guy, that you are old, and you have an illegitimate child right now, but I do not see you as you are in this moment. I see you rather as the person that I'm going to make you into, that you are going to be. And in the same way, I would say this to you, that God, when he looks at you, he doesn't see the you that you see when you look in the mirror. He doesn't see the you that everybody else sees when they look at you. Rather, when God looks at you, he sees the person in you that he is going to make you into by his grace, by the power of his spirit working in you as you walk with him, as he transforms you. Just as he looked at Abram and he could see beyond who he was to who he was going to be, God God looks at you and I and he's able to see beyond who we are now as people who are works in progress, as people who are under construction, and he's able to see the finished product of who we will become ultimately in Christ. In Romans 8 verse 30, Paul the Apostle says this, he says, Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now that's speaking of you, but notice that it speaks in the past tense. Because I don't feel very glorified right now, but here it says that God, it's already a done deal in his book. It uses the past tense. Justified glorified. And notice how God spoke to Abram also in the past tense. In verse 5 he said, no longer shall your name be Abram, but I will make you Abraham. I have made you, past tense, again, I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. Abram couldn't see the reality of that yet, but in God's book it was a done deal. It was just a matter of time. And in the same way you may not feel justified, You may not look glorified. You might have a hard time imagining yourself even glorified. But if you are in Christ, this is the promise of the gospel. That in God's book, it's a done deal. It's just a matter of time. So not only was there the initiation which required a response, but God requested a very specific response from Abraham. Let's read that from verses 9 to 14. This is God's request for a response. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout the generations. And this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay, so here what we have is a symbol of the covenant. 
Now, many covenant relationships have an outward symbol which serves as something visible or something tangible to remind us or speak to us of the covenant which we've entered into. (coughs) For example, I married, and that's why I wear a wedding ring, right? That's the symbol of my covenant relationship with my wife. It's just a small piece of metal, really, but it symbolizes uh, something very deep and something very profound. In the New Testament, we also see such uh, similar things. We see uh, baptism, for example. Baptism is an outward symbol of a covenant relationship that you have with Jesus Christ as a believer in him and a follower of him. Communion is an outward symbol of a covenant relationship. You are celebrating that you are in a covenant relationship with God because of the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ shed for you on the cross. In the Old Testament, before Abraham, there's another example of someone receiving a sign of a covenant. Noah got a covenant with God and he got a symbol of that covenant. It was a rainbow. So now God comes to Abraham and says, Abe, I'm here to confirm my covenant with you and I'm going to give you an outward symbol of my covenant with you. And you got to imagine that Abraham was really excited, right? (coughs) He can't wait to hear what this is going to be. He's probably thinking, well, Noah got a rainbow. What am I going to get? He's probably thinking, this is like my birthday and Christmas all rolled into one. I get a new name and now I'm going to get a symbol of the covenant. This is so good. God, what's it going to be? Is it going to be something like a rainbow? Could I maybe get a a unicorn? You know, and God tells him, God tells him what it is, kind of like, I imagine he kind of whispers it in his ear. And Abram's like, excuse me? He's like, circumwetion? You know? You want me to cut off what? Like, are you serious? He's like, oh, I know what this is, right? This is one of those practical jokes. Is there is like a candid camera around here somewhere? Ashton Kutcher's going to jump out and tell me I got punked, you know? Um, you know, what's it going to be? He, you're just going to tell me you're just messing with me, right? And then he's like, come on, what's the real symbol of the covenant? It's a unicorn, isn't it, right? A unicorn would be awesome. And then he, he realized after a while that God's not joking with them. He's like, hmm... Well, when you talk about obeying God by faith, you got to know that this one took a lot of faith, right? Because if you're Abraham, you want to be like 100% sure that you heard from God on this one. Uh, but, but you'd probably have to conclude this, that, well, this must have been from God because I certainly wouldn't have come up with this on my own. So, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes people come and, and tell me that they believe God's spoken to them and told them to do something, but they're having a hard time obeying. Well, whatever God told you to do, there's a good chance it's probably easier to obey than what God told Abraham to do. And maybe you're like me, and you're wondering, why circumcision, right? Of all the things in the world that you could possibly do, why circumcision? Why not just cut off a toe or something? Isn't that good? I mean, we don't need all those toes. But why circumcision of all things? Well, there's a very good reason, and uh, I think it's quite profound, so so let me tell you what it is. I I think I have a slide of it up here. Circumcision was an ancient practice, which was already existing at this time, 
and it was used to signify ownership of a slave or loyalty to a king or a lord. Now, when you think of it that way, you start to understand, hey, well, that makes a lot more sense, right? That's why it's good to know the background. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't make sense now why Abraham would do this, why he would go on with this and do this to all the men in his household. You see, if you understand the the historical background and why it was practiced, what the meaning and the purpose was at that time, um, then it makes sense. But if you don't, then it just seems like this very strange, arbitrary thing that God asked Abraham to do, right? So, this was essentially a statement that Abraham and the men of his household belong to God. They're saying, we are the heads of our household and we belong to God. He is our king. He is our Lord. We are servants of the living God and this is the outward symbol of that inward reality. And it's especially significant that Abram himself was circumcised because it would not have been uncommon for a a wealthy man with power like Abraham had uh, to demand that all his men be circumcised as a symbol that they belong to him. But here's Abraham circumcising himself and showing that this isn't about him. This is about belonging to the Lord. And this brings up a very interesting parallel in the New Testament. Because circumcision is something which was done to slaves, right? To signify that they belong to a master. Well, Paul the Apostle then comes along later. As a Jewish person, he's a trained rabbi. He's very devout Jew. He knows the scriptures. He knows the traditions. He's become a follower of Christ. And I believe he's springboarding off of this idea of circumcision when he refers to himself repeatedly throughout his letters as a slave of Christ Jesus, as a servant of the Lord. And that word slave in the Greek is the word doulos, right? And and many of your newer translations will translate it servant instead of slave because we're, you know, we're um, we're very sensitive about the the word slavery and the idea of slaves in our our culture, and rightly so. But perhaps the best translation of the word doulos in, in English is the word bondservant, which other translations translate it as. And it refers to someone who becomes a slave of another person by their own volition, by their own choice. They choose to become that person's full-time servant or slave. You know, my, my own Bible reading last week, I was reading through Exodus. Towards the end of the book, right, God gives Moses the law. And I read this passage, which is, which is part of the law, and it's part of a section which deals with slaves. And check this out, it's interesting. This is Exodus chapter 21. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master my wife and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl that he shall be his slave forever. Now what's going on here is this. At this time, slavery um, was common. What people would do is if they were poor or if they were in great debt that they couldn't get out of, then they would sell themselves into slavery. You know, another way to think of this in English is indentured servanthood. Uh, It was a way out of poverty, really. And so people would do it, but there were laws to protect these people. That you could only keep a slave for six years. You had to treat them well. But if the slave would come to their master, because they, over the time they were with them, realized that 
They were better off in their master's home. Their master loved them and treated them well and cared for them and fed their family and provided for them. Then they could say, I voluntarily choose to become that man's slave for my entire life. I don't want to leave this house. This is where I want to stay forever. And isn't that an amazing picture of the gospel? I think it is, because the gospel message is that in Christ, we have been set free. You know, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, it says this, that for freedom, Christ has set us free. So as free men, though, we make this choice of our own volition, as free men, to become servants of Christ, to submit ourselves to him forever, to make him our master forever. Because we've come to know him and we've come to the realization and the conviction that there is no better place for us than with him. There's no place we would rather dwell than in his presence forever. And we, you know, I I have this friend and one time we were talking about Christianity. He's not a believer and he was, he was telling me, I could never be a Christian because I am a free thinker. And I explained to him that, hey, a true Christian is no less of a free thinker than anyone else. Because essentially a Christian is a person who has made a choice of their own volition to submit their life to Christ, to become a servant of Christ, to follow him. That's a choice that they consciously make. No one makes it for them. No one can make it for them. They choose to make Jesus Christ Lord of their life and follow his teachings and obey him. So so the basic issue is not being a free thinker or not being a free thinker. Um... But the real issue is, who is the Lord of your life? Because the only difference between me and my friend is that I make Jesus the Lord of my life, whereas he wants to be the Lord of his own life. So by being circumcised, Abraham and the men of his household are saying, we belong to the Lord. He is our king. He is our master. We have chosen to submit ourselves to him and be loyal to him. You know, circumcision was something which was an outward symbol of God's covenant with the nation of Israel. And later on, through the prophet Jeremiah, God tells the people that the Messiah will come and he will institute a new covenant. And when Jesus comes, this new covenant is instituted, and the symbols of this new covenant are baptism and communion. And when, when that happened, if you read through the New Testament, the book of Acts and the letters of Paul, you see that circumcision became a major point of contention amongst early Christians. Because those who came from a Jewish background believed that faith in Jesus was the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. That's what we see here too. And they said, well then, we must continue to be circumcised as a symbol of the covenant. Others said, well we're not Jews, we're we're just Christians. We're, we're pagans who became Christians. And Abraham's our father in the faith, but not in the flesh. So we don't need that outward thing to make ourselves acceptable before God because we are acceptable in Christ. And this debate went on and on. And finally, it had to be addressed by the apostles. And the apostle Paul writes about it in a couple places. And, and essentially what he says is this. Summed up, he says this. Circumcision is an outward symbol of an inward reality. But if there is no inward reality behind it, then the symbol is meaningless. Right? The, th- the same thing is true of any outward symbol. Uh, if there's no meaning behind it, if there's no substance, then the symbol itself has no meaning. If, if I wear a ring on this finger, but I'm not married, if I don't have that covenant relationship, then this is just a piece of jewelry. If a person hasn't been born again, 
then for them, getting baptized is nothing more than getting dunked in the water and getting some water dropped on your head. You know, if you don't recognize the body and blood of Christ broken for you and shed for you on the cross, well then communion is just a cracker and some juice. And some people have said, you know, I've been baptized, I've gone through confirmation, I've taken first communion. But what God's word tells us is that these outward symbols are actually meaningless if there's no inward reality, no substance behind them. And that's why even in the Old Testament, God's message to his people was this. And in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16, he says it. And in another place, he says, what you really need is to be circumcised in your hearts. Now, that sounds like a very dangerous medical procedure, doesn't it, right? But, uh, but of course, what it's talking about is that circumcision should not just be something that people have outwardly as a symbol. It should be something which is the inward reality of their heart. You know, the purpose of circumcision was to show that a person belonged to God, that they were loyal to God, that he was their Lord. And God told them, I want this to be the inward reality of your heart, not just an outward symbol. The outward symbol has to have significance. It has to reflect something which is true in your heart as well. And that should be true of us as Christians, that we shouldn't be people who are only baptized outwardly, but let us people be people who really follow Jesus in our hearts. Let us not be people who just take communion outwardly, but let us people who be people who take hold of the forgiveness and the cleansing that communion represents. So let's go on from verse 15. God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. And I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face and laughed, and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Still, Sarah, who is ninety years old, will she bear a child? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. So God again tells him, you're going to have a son. Remember last week we talked about Ishmael. Abraham and Sarah, they got anxious, they got nervous that God wouldn't come through on his promise. So they took matters into their own hands. And even though it wasn't according to the will of God or the plan of God, they had a child with their maidservant named uh, Hagar and the child's name was Ishmael. And now Ishmael is 13 years old. He's growing up, he's becoming a man. Abraham and Sarah are expecting that any day now, he's going to go get married, have some grandbabies, and God's promise to them will be fulfilled in him. See, they're still under the impression that God is going to bless their mess, and he's going to bless them through Ishmael. And God's showing up here and telling them, no, I'm not going to bless you through Ishmael. My plan from the beginning was to give you a child through Sarah. You didn't wait for that, but I'm still going to be faithful to you. You know, Ishmael's growing up in a home with his mom and his dad and his dad's wife. You know, that had to be hard for him. Um, and, and Abram says, God, please, if, 
only you would just bless Ishmael. Let Ishmael walk before you. Let him be the promised child because I love him. He's my son. But God says, I'm sorry. He's not the child that I wanted to give you. I will bless Ishmael, but not in that way. He says, God says, I'm going to give you a son. When you're 100 years old, and when your wife's 90 years old, and Abraham just cracks up laughing. And I believe this is the laughter of just being blown away. His mind is blown. He's just, he just can't believe it. And he asks God, you know, can't you just bless Ishmael? And God says, no. And there's an important reason why God won't accept Ishmael. Because Ishmael was the blessing that they tried to give themselves because they believed that God wouldn't come through for them and keep his promise. Ishmael was their attempt to make something happen. He was their attempt to fulfill God's promise, to bless themselves in their ability rather than letting God bless them in his timing according to his plan and his will. You know, Galatians chapter 4 mentions how Ishmael and Isaac represent two covenants. Ishmael represents those who, who seek to strive to earn the blessings of God by their own efforts and their own strength. And Isaac represents those who receive the grace of God by faith. And the point is that the blessing of God can't be earned or worked for, but they can only be freely given and miraculously given by God's grace, like Isaac was, for God's glory. So our last two points, and they're very short, but the last two points are this. The first were were God's part, right? The initiation that requires a response and the request for a response. And here we see our part, the urgency of response and the extent of response from verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. And Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. The urgency of response is this. That very day, Abraham did it. He didn't procrastinate. He didn't vacillate. He responded when God spoke to him. And the question I have to ask myself, and the question you have to ask yourself is, what about me? How do I respond when God speaks to me? How do I respond to his word? How do I, do I act when, when I know that he's spoken to me? Do I respond right away? Would I respond that day or do I hem and haw about it? There's an urgency that should be felt about the word of God. When God speaks, we don't put it off. We need to respond. This is the heart that the writer of the Hebrews had when he wrote them. And he said over and over the same phrase. He said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because hardening your heart's a dangerous thing. Because when you harden your heart repeatedly, you develop what the Bible calls a calloused heart. And, and all of us have had calluses. We know what that is. There, there are spots of thick skin that gets hard, right? And then that calloused area, whereas it used to be sensitive to the touch... It's now insensitive. And if we get in the practice of hardening our hearts when God speaks to us and not acting on it, then we can end up with a calloused heart that's no longer sensitive to the voice of the Lord, to the prodding of the Lord, as it once was. And notice the extent of Abraham's response. It was total. He circumcised everybody. 
And he probably had a couple hundred men working for him. He circumcised them all. And that should encourage us as to the nature of our response to God's grace. That when God speaks, we listen. When he directs, we act, we follow. And our obedience should be total. So I'll conclude just by saying this. Let's look at this story. Let's see what this means. And let's see the responsive heart of Abraham. The God who initiates and our response. The two pedals on the bicycle. Let us be people who respond to God because God cares very much about how we respond to his grace. And let us be people who have circumcised hearts. Hearts in which Jesus is Lord. Hearts that are submitted and obedient to him because of all that he's done for us. And may that inner attitude of our hearts, may it be worked out in our outward actions. Not so that God will accept us by those actions, but because God has accepted us in Christ. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in Christ, Lord, you have justified us and you have glorified us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today who has not yet responded to your offer of forgiveness and salvation and new life in Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray that they would respond to that today. Lord, I pray that you would stir the hearts of, the, of all of us who are here, Lord. And you would show us the areas of our life where you're speaking to us, where you're directing us. And I pray, Lord, give us hearts like Abraham. That when you speak, we listen. When you direct, we follow. When you command, we obey. With urgency and with totality. For your glory, Lord, because of your grace. Lord, help us to be people who respond to you. We pray that you do that work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.